Father, as we come to open your word, we ask that through your Holy Spirit you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear that we might glean something, each one of us, glean something fresh to minister to our walk with you and to our walk with each other and to our, our, our ministry to others as well. And uh, we just bring this time to you, we commit it to you, ask that you would cause all the distractions of the, the, the week past and the week ahead, the day ahead, to be set aside, that we just might focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning we'll be moving back into the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we've already been uh, through the first uh, few chapters, up through chap- part of chapter 5 actually, halfway through chapter 5, uh, and then we took a detour as we uh, took a series on what we believe in reference to our statement of faith and, and uh, identifying who we are as a group of con- uh, Christians within the framework of the community of Christ and within the framework of the community of the Eel River Valley. And so uh, we're back now uh, in the book of Matthew and in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think today would be just a day more of anything else as a day of review of where we have been. Uh, if you were to look at the, at the Gospel of Matthew... Uh, the first few chapters, no way am I going to go verse by verse again, uh, but just a few thoughts that go with it. And chapter 1 was the, the reality of a genealogy, the point that, that Jesus has this earthly reality, uh, 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 lineage that ties him to the throne of David, and that he is the king of kings, and, and the one who will reign forever in the throne of David. And, and so we understand this, and we see it in his genealogy and his birth, and all that surrounded that. And, and then uh, John the Baptist, uh, it, it goes really from his birth and, his, uh, and Herod's uh, attempt to eliminate Jesus, uh, to uh, Jesus going to Egypt and his parents coming home. And then we go right into John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we understand from the, the other chapters and the first two chapters of, of Matthew, John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He's six months older. If you do the math through the, the genealogy or the, uh, through the, 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 the statements of, of the angels and all, if you do the math, uh, you find out that John is about six months older than Jesus and that at the age of 30, John started his ministry. I emphasize that as I did when I first talked about it because in the Jewish culture, a man uh, did not have, if you will, the, from a tradition more than anything else, didn't have the right to speak as, as a one who could read the Word or, or, or teach on the Word until he was 30 years old. And so John the Baptist uh, begins his ministry at the age of, of 30. And uh, six months later, Jesus is coming to John the Baptist to be baptized and start his ministry at the age of 30. And then... We have the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus uh, continuing well, uh, where John the Baptist left off in his preaching. John the Baptist preached very clearly. 
that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was coming. He was one that was there uh, fulfilling the uh, prophetic picture from Isaiah, that you know, the one preparing the way of the Lord. And as a result, then Jesus turns around and he picks up the same theme. If you go to chapter 4 of, of the book of Matthew, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If anything that we could say, the, the, the theme of, of the gospel of Matthew seems to be the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And by the way, they are basically synonymous. It's just that Matthew, writing to the Jewish population, chose the word kingdom of heaven so that his audience wouldn't be offended uh, by saying, you know, writing, saying, or putting the word God in, the, in, 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 in writing and, and this type of thing. So yeah, it was the idea of, of the kingdom of heaven is at hand and, and prepare yourself for it. Verse 23 of chapter 4 says, And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And uh, add to this verse 24 and 25. So, this fame, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed from, uh, by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the, to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. They were, these people were coming from the southern part of, 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 of the area of, of Israel today, going north to the area of Galilee to see what was going on. Now, we pick up in chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount where it says in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And, and he begins to teach. He, it says in verse 2, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... And then we'll, we'll stop there for just a minute and, and look at this. This is the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be looking at and reviewing a little bit here and then continuing in uh, over the next many weeks. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is an extremely important part of Scripture. I would venture to... to not say with absolute authority, but with, a, with a, a reference to what I have seen, that the Sermon on the Mount may be one of the most known parts of Scripture in its overall picture uh, as any other single part of Scripture. Uh, yeah, if you want to, to type in something that gets you going in 17,000 different directions, just type in Sermon on the Mount and put it on your Internet search. And you're going to see some very interesting things, and it's going to take you in a lot of directions. By the way, and I, I probably am the least person in here that needs to coach anybody in reference to technology today, but let me say that when you do a search on, on any kind of Internet search, beware of what you're reading. If, whatever the source is, Check it out. See if it has a, a web page. See if it has a, a, a statement of faith and read it. If you're going to spend the time to study somebody's writings about the Scripture, you'll want to know what they believe. That's why a statement of faith is so important. 
is it tells people who you are. And we spent all this time going through it so that we could say, this is who we as a congregation are. This is what we believe. We believe that the Word of God is God-breathed. We believe that, uh, that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, is one God. We believe that there is salvation in Christ and Christ alone and no other, and that He is God in the flesh. The Word dwelt among us in the flesh. He emptied himself. All the things that we've been talking about over the, the last several weeks are what we are and who we are in the sense of our faith. And so I tell people, I have people say, well, that's, that's, that's a lot of extra work. Then go to a website that you're confident in. Go to, if, you're, if you're confident with, with uh, John Piper, then go to John Piper. If you're, if you're confident with uh, R.C. Sprawl, then go to R.C. Sprawl. If you're, you know, go to the ones that you know whose statement of faith coincides with the things that, that, that you have, have uh, learned and, grow, and, and believe in. It, but if you just start to go random and you say, oh, gee, that sounds interesting, do your homework. I think that's extremely important. And it really doesn't take that long. And two things normally happen. One is you'll either find a new source of information that you, you can look to and, and find other reference points to, or you can find one you can check off your list as one you don't need to bother with again. And I'm going to subcategorize this one thing. I am amazed at the number of Latter-day Saint sites that are on the web today that don't say they are Latter-day Saints until you get into it and find out who they're about or they start talking about, uh, you know, uh, BYU or, 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 or whatever. You know, uh, you know so... Beware. Understand, the web is a great source, but it isn't the source. This is the source. Make sure it stands with this. And this alone, no other word to add to it to say, oh, and these words over here are just as important. I'm just saying, make sure it handles what we would consider and look at the Scriptures, the God-breathed word. Okay? So with that, you know, Warning ahead, it's just the idea that using the Internet, you'll come up with a lot of interesting things about the Sermon on the Mount. Another thing you'll find is that there are a tremendous amount of books written about the Sermon on the Mount. I have people say, well, what, what could I be reading? Uh, there's there's a, a Bible study that John Stott uh, put together uh, that is, I think is an excellent study on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and uh, it's an actual study guide with, with, uh, that you can buy that goes with a, a, a study uh, commentary with, with it. It's, uh, it's excellent. When we start our uh, community groups again in uh, two weeks, well, ten days probably at this point, uh, the 9th of March on Wednesday when we start our community group here in Fortuna, uh, we are going to start up doing a parallel study with the, the Sermon on the Mount that we're preaching and so that we can get into more detail, ask the questions. You know, a lot of times those things come up in, 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 in sermons. You just say, how did, how did he get from point A to point B? You know, and, and so this will give us an opportunity to discuss that. Uh, and and one of the, the book we're using is Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a pretty exhaustive book. It's, it's, it's no lightweight uh, but it's, I, I bring it to your attention, and I, is the, well, we have, I think, uh, 
five copies, six copies available if anybody would like one. And you don't have to be coming to the group to have one if you just want to use this on your own. Uh, but it's available on Amazon. It's available in Christian uh, uh, book. Uh, it's available at, at various locations. Uh, I think you can get it, uh, well, just about everywhere. It's, it's a fairly uh, common book. And it's, it's Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so if you're interested in that, we have a few copies here. And uh, you can also get it. I know that it's available for uh, your, your, your electronic books as well. So uh, uh, getting back into to, to the word here, uh, we're at chapter 5. Jesus is, is seeing the crowds of mass around him that have been following him. He sees them. He, he uh, goes up on a mountainside, I think in a sense finds a plateau area where, where he can uh, minister to the people. And it says he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and it's an interesting picture. It's something that seems to be the opposite in our culture. Uh, for the time of Christ, when a man began to teach the things of God, he'd, he'd, he'd sit down. And, uh, and, and, and that would happen in the synagogue or wherever. So Jesus sits down. Now, I have yet to see the movie where he sits down. But, uh, you know, and, and I think that's because we have this mental picture of how could he possibly have been heard if he was sitting? Well, quite candidly, with all the crowds of people that are there, how could he possibly be heard unless there was something supernatural going on in the first place? I believe that was a constant. I don't think anybody that came to listen had a problem hearing. That's just all I, I, I can put it. And so it doesn't matter how many people were there. If they came to hear, I believe God made it clear. And so Jesus begins to teach them. And it says he teaches his disciples. So now all of a sudden the question is, well, why when there's such a big crowd of people did he only teach his disciples? Well, now we have to decide when, he's, when Matthew is using the word disciples in this context. Is he talking about the general description of a disciple? There's those who would follow and listen to someone's teaching. or Talking about the twelve. Well, in this case, I think the Sermon on the Mount answers the question itself for us. And that is the, the, the last two verses of chapter 7, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished in his teaching. What does it say? The crowds were astonished. And the crowds had what then? They had heard his teachings. It's hard to be astonished if they hadn't. It would have been, what did he say? I'm astonished. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, so they heard what he was saying. And, and uh, uh, the reason they were so amazed at his teaching shows that there was some understanding besides because it says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Not like the scribes. The scribes just repeated the things that had been taught, the traditions, the various things, read the words, but they weren't. Jesus was getting into the detail of how you will put things together, how you apply the Word of God, and, and what it means to walk with Christ, to walk with God, and, and, and certainly ultimately what to walk, how to walk as a Christian. And so the Sermon on the Mount gets a title that's kind of interesting. Um, well, I shouldn't. I, I, there's probably many titles, but one of the ones that stuck in my mind is the a, a Christian Manifesto. 
manifesto is something that describes the way a group of people believe and act and choose to look ahead as to how they will act in certain situations. So a manifesto is a rather inclusive thing in the sense that it says, this is who we are, this is how we believe, and if this circumstance came up, this is what we might do. And Jesus, uh, so this is a Christian manifesto, a way a Christian should live his life uh, according to Jesus. Um, the thing that, 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 that is amazing is the things that are said that are so, I don't know, for lack of better words, they, it's like something uh, pierces you. And I think of the scripture out of, out of Hebrews where it says the word is sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting through it right down through the bone, right through the marrow of the bone. And I don't mean to be morbid or gross, but I never, I, I, some people might never really be able to grasp what that really is, but that's a term, a terminology that comes from one who would witness a battle of, of, of men with big swords. Uh, and there is an ancient poem called The Song of Roland, uh, about the 8th century uh, and battles of, of, of great hordes of, <laughs> of, of men in the battles. And it talked about how in their battles of, with their huge, huge swords as they would wield them, that someone would be cleaved, cleaved, and the idea was that it would open him up through all the bones. That's literally what this means, it, to cleave even through the bone. In other words, to open you up and expose you. The Word of God is, is, is going to open you up and expose you to the light. And so there's a number of very specific verses in here that are, uh, I think, quite overwhelming. Verse 48 of chapter 5. And we haven't got there yet, but it's important to see at this point, I think. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father must be perfect. There's another point where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. For the people hearing that, that would be astonishing. Because the Pharisees and the scribes were the scholars. They, they were the guys that knew the Word of God. They, if anybody had uh, a, a, a righteousness, if you will, to put them before the throne of God, it would have to be them. And Jesus says, in order for us to see the throne of God, our righteousness will have to exceed that. By the way, what's the implication? If they're resting in their own righteousness, they're not going to see God. There's something important to start to grasp from that. Be perfect. Not just righteous in the sense of keeping the rules, but be perfect even as God is perfect. And as more you look at that and... and if you don't get anywhere else, and then that's where you end up in this in this study, you're 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 lost. You're helplessly, hopelessly lost. Because 
Anybody who starts to really think about it, no matter what your background is, even if you come the way I used to come at things before I was a Christian, even if there is a God, and I actually believed in a, in a, a, a prime mover of things, a, 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 an intelligent design behind the universe. And so when I said, if there is a God, I would be basically saying, you know, if there's a God that you can know, oh gosh, I look at my life, I'm certainly not the worst guy I know. I'm, I'm as good as anybody else I do know. Therefore, I must be okay. And then I started studying the Scriptures. And I got to this point. At age 26, August 15, 1976, I was at a crucial point in my life. Because I finally come to the understanding there is a God. He's revealed through Jesus Christ. And, and, and you need to be perfect in order to see him face to face. And I don't have it. Not only do I not have it, but there is no way for me to get it in the sense of me. God's grace floods the gate and says, rest in me. Rest in me, Bob. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation for those who rest in me, Bob. That morning around 6.15, 6.30, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I hadn't a clue as to what I was asking. I have to be honest with you. I mean, I, I didn't know. I, had, I did go to church. I had, didn't have a church uh, to go to. I, I, I didn't know that. I, I couldn't picture myself being a part of church. Uh, never had been. I remember when I came home uh, and that started this venture a year and a half earlier, uh, when somebody had challenged me to read the Gospel of John, and I came home after having read the Gospel of, of John, and then Mark, Luke, and, and Matthew, uh, and and I came home and told Kathy, I said, she says, "Well, how was your afternoon?" And I said, "Oh, I read the Gospels." This was this was not too long after I had told her, "If your friends come with their Bibles, I'll go down to the Wheelark, it's a pool hall and beer place, you know, and you can call me." <laughs> When they're gone, you know, I was done listening. Yeah, and so I think you could have walked into her mouth. I'm not really sure, you know, but, uh, yeah, but, you know, over the next year and a half, there was a quest going on just to figure out why they believed what they believed. I believed that they were writing with the passion of faith, but I couldn't figure out how they could get there. And, and finally, it, 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 it's something that I begin to rest in. And I, and I realized until you rest in the grace and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you don't really understand what it's all about. And then when you do have the Holy Spirit, you realize, I'm never going to understand what it's all about, but I'm going to draw closer every chance I get. And another scripture of, of the Sermon on the Mount becomes a reality, and we just sang that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and these things, all the things of righteousness, the things of understanding will be added to you. You know, uh, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You can get right into the end of Revelation. Behold, I stand into uh, the Bible. I stand at the door and knock. If you will open the door and let me in, I will come in and, 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 and eat with you. Which is a sense of fellowship and, and love, compassion, and friendship. So, I'm sitting here. How is it possible? Well, it's only possible through God. It's only possible through Jesus Christ. And it was the crowds that were coming to hear this message of what it was to live a life that reflected one who was seeking the face of God. The crowds were there. And we preached a series on the the Beatitudes. And uh, just a quick look at it uh, this morning is that you look at verse 3, the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Go to the last one, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute. There's two more. You know, there's another blessing in verse 11, isn't that? Verse 11 and verse 12 are a continuation, I believe, of understanding verse 10. Okay, so, so we have eight you know, beatitudes there, and, and, and he opened his mouth, he begins to teach me, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and then he says, blessed are those that are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts with the kingdom of heaven, he ends with the kingdom of heaven in the sense of the beatitudes, which gives us the indication that they're like bookends to everything that's in between, so it's all dealing with the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, I'm not going to go through uh, great uh, amounts of, of detail on these this morning. Uh, well, first off, I will say one thing, though, the idea of blessed. Uh, some of the translations say happy. Um, I think that that's less than enough to really understand the word blessed uh, because there's a number of times that I have been blessed and not immediately happy. <laughs> But if I believe that all things work together for the good, those who rest in Christ, then that means that even bad things can turn to blessing somehow. If I rest in the understanding that I, I can say, thank you, God, for all the trials and tribulations because they have strengthened me a while, then I can see the blessing in them. But it's not, I, I, I don't like the word happy because it just connotates something that's been identified with me all my life. A nickname that goes back and, and the irony of this is that no one person came up with it that, over a period of time, but a number of people unrelated in unrelated circumstances. Happy Bob Good. Now, in fact, one guy even wrote a, a, what was almost like a dissertation. Uh, he was a brilliant person, and he also did not care for me. And he wrote the, the story about the happy Bob Good with a smile of indelible ink. And I do have a smile that's normally there. In pain and even in sorrow and sometimes a little bit confusing. I'm built that way. I use two excuses. I blame my grandfather genetically. I, I, I don't think I ever saw anything 
in the way of a frown. And if I try to frown, it's clearly animated. Yeah? Uh, yeah, and, and so there's a genetic picture there. And then the other part is I'm just inherently lazy. It's, it takes less muscles to smile than to frown. So, you know. Uh, so I, I get this picture of the word happy as, as kind of like happy-go-lucky, happy Bob Good. You know, and so happy is not enough for me. I, I, I prefer the idea of, of blessed and then try to figure out how this looks and realize that blessed is an amazingly complex spiritual word in some ways to look at. God, do you realize we can bless God? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. No, that's, that's an amazing thing. We can bless the Lord. And He blesses us. And that's even more amazing. We bless Him because we catch a glimpse of who He is and know that He alone is worthy to be blessed. I need to be praised, to be eulogized, to be known, and to be understood, and to, 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 to try to figure out and to know and all of this type of thing. And He turns around and says, but you're not going to be able to do that unless I invite you in. And I can only invite you in one way. Therefore, I will open the door for you. And the most amazing door, the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes the door to knowing God and being blessed by Him. Now, there's some general blessings that flow around. The rain, the sun, all that kind of stuff. Everybody gets a shot at that. There's even people that get blessed with lots of money who have no knowledge of, or concern about uh, knowing God personally. So if, if, if your blessing is registered in the things of the world, you're going to miss this. That's another part of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not there yet. So this picture of blessing is, 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 is this idea of, of coming to know who God is. And, and I am a person that's blessed because something of God has been revealed to me. Not just happy. I'm astonished. I'm amazed. I'm overwhelmed. So happy just doesn't quite fill it for me. Blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. And this picture for me, I'm just going to put it in the simplest way I can because I need to move ahead here. Uh, personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Coming back to where I said I had been in my life and where we all are in our life until we accept Christ. Helplessly, hopelessly lost. I am spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing for me to bring to the throne of Christ that's going to open the door. I need to come to the door He has created. He is the door. That one's not in the sermon. That's in John, though. <laughs> um, so, poor in spirit or personally acknowledge my bankruptcy. Now I'm poor in spirit. Well, what happens to one who's poor in spirit? He begins to do something else. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is the idea of, of I've t- I realize I'm spiritually bankrupt. Why? Because of your sins. Thanks, Arlene. I feel like that preacher right now. That's, you, know, you never point at people because there's always fingers pointing back. You know, preachers preach like this. <laughs> because of your sin. My sin, 
I am bankrupt because I am a sinner falling short of the glory of God. I need a way to the throne. I need a way to God's grace. I have personal grief over my sin. Now, it's an interesting thing. I think that there's a bigger picture here that you can apply into the sense that once you begin to grieve over your own sin, you begin to grieve over the sins of those you love. Not because you're pointing out, oh, they're sinners, but because you want them to get on the same plane that you are in the same direction you're going. And you might even grieve over the, the, the fallenness of the world at some point. But the initial context here is that you're grieving over your own sin. As a result, there's a humility that enters in. Blessed are the meek. Okay? Uh, the, the, the idea of, of being meek is that, that they shall inherit the earth. And, and I think the idea of the earth here is, 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 the, is bigger than, than well, that's, a, that's already been talked about. Uh, it's, the idea is, is that you're meek, you are humble. You realize as you are bankrupt in spirit, as you realize that uh, there's nothing I can do and you begin to mourn, you begin to realize I am hopelessly lost. I can't do this. I can't fix this. But he can. I can't, but he can. And there's only one that can. That was a hard thing for me. If there was anything I had believed prior to entering into my Christian walk that I thought in a generality was probably more like the Baha'i faith, everybody's right. That's a simple way of saying it. I know that there's, there's some exclusions in there and stuff, but generally speaking, anybody's right. As long as you're on the right path and, you're, and you've got the right heart for it, you're, you're in. Everybody will be saved. Type of thing. And that's what it led me to say, well, I'm not any worse than any of the rest of them. You know, if there's a God, I'll be saved too. Um, but this is where you begin. There's only one source of this salvation. This is what the Holy Spirit begins to show you. Opening your heart, opening your mind. So that you can see, there is no other name under heaven that's going to work. And there's no deed under heaven that's going to work. All that is going to work is the blood of the cross covering you and you acknowledging by a confession with your mouth and a belief in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Period. And then you'll be saved. creates a whole new thing. And that's where verse 6 comes in. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now you can start knocking. Now you can start asking. Now you can start seeking. And you're going to get answers that make sense to where you are now. Do I understand everything? No. Do I understand what it is to be saved? Yes. Is there some great questions I have for God in heaven? Absolutely. But in the meantime, I am confident that even if I can't fully understand his word, that doesn't negate what his word says. That means I need to seek more, ask more, 
and, 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 and knock more. Open the door more. And I'll glean a little more. Here's a principle that Isaiah talks about. Line on line, precept on precept. You don't just boom. My grandfather was a great person in, in this idea. He was, of all the things that he could, could do, he was a math genius. Levi, I bet you you would have loved to sit down with my grandfather. He graduated at age 19 with his master's degree from Berkeley in mathematics. What did he do? He went to Lompoc, California. You know, there nobody, most people still don't really know where that is. They know where Vandenberg is because of, of, of an Air Force base. But Lompoc, California, and, and I don't know that it's much bigger now than it was, you know, uh, 50 years ago for that matter. But, well, it is a little bit because of the Air Force base. Uh, but, but, and he started teaching in, in 1898 in a one-room schoolhouse. He even had some students that were older than him. Because back there, you maybe only went to school one quarter a year, and the rest of the time you worked. And so he had some students that were just going, and other students, little by little by little. And the idea was line on line. We'll take what you've learned, and we'll build on that. No expectations that you have to be over here where George is, just where Carl can be. Line on line, precept on precept. And he believed that if he could teach you math, and teach you to read, he can take you anywhere. And I kind of agree with him. He, could, he was the kind of person that he, he could take you just about anywhere. Creates that cycle. I'm poor in spirit. I'm mourning over my sin. I, I, I humbly receive Jesus Christ in that sense of meekness. And now, please, Lord... Cause me to hunger and thirst. There's uh, uh, in in the in the charismatic movement. There's a lot of things about you know uh, coming to to services and people falling in the spirit or slaying in the spirit and people waving over them fans and and, and cloths in their hands saying more, more, more. I really have to tell you that really, that part of it really doesn't bother me because I want more. You can pray for me any time you want that I get more. I pray for you that you get more. More of what? Really, more hungering and thirsting. Because the hungering and thirsting has been promised to be answered. So I don't need the answers per se. I need the hungering and thirst to glean the answers that are already there. Does that make sense? Okay. So there we are. The idea of, of, of a person who starts to hunger and thirst and to know Christ is one that we become merciful towards others. We receive mercy and now we extend mercy. Pure in heart in the sense of realizing that, that our desire is to bless the Lord. And because of His pure heart extending and covering us through the cross, we are invited into His pureness so that we can know Him. And so guess what? All of a sudden, I'm perfect as he is perfect only through the blood of Christ. And I get to have a face-to-face with him as he knocks at the door and I open. Peacemaker. See, Colt made a peace. No, that's not the right one. 
peacemaker. What's a peacemaker? Well, I'm going to put it simply. Those who share the peace of Christ with others. What's the peace of Christ? I am helplessly, hopelessly lost, but through the blood of Christ, I have been saved, and now I hunger and thirst after his righteousness, and therefore I am at peace with God through the blood of Christ. That's a peacemaker. Well, I can't do that. I can't give my... No, but I can tell you about it. There's another way of putting it. Um, uh, Romans uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 15. Um, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And and if you go to... uh, Isaiah and finish it, and it also includes, and proclaiming peace. In a world that was full of chaos and war at the time, he's saying, the ones that bring good news and proclaiming peace. There was no, there was no earthly peace. There's still no earthly peace. There's not going to be any earthly peace, and I don't mean to quote an old song of, of, of the Imperials, I think it was, but, but, but there will be no peace until Christ sits at the conference table. And, of course, if he sits, he's in charge. So we're, I believe there's not going to be in peace until the second coming of Christ. So we're not talking about physical peace, so there must be something else that's being talked about. A peacemaker is the one who offers the opportunity to be at peace with Christ. Now, there is a secondary and a bigger picture here, I, and I will acknowledge this. Inasmuch as it's up to us to be at peace, Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 12, inasmuch as it's up to us to be at peace with everyone, as long as it's not compromising our faith. In other words, if to be at peace with someone means I have to take any part of this, God breathed and set it aside, I can't be at peace with them. doesn't mean I hate them, but we will not be able to uh, share the intimacy of, of, of fellowship in Christ. Because that's what's necessary. But peacemaker is one who shares that specialness, that intimacy. Who lives it out in ways that people will ultimately ask, why are you this way? And then Peter says, be ready to give a testimony. We're peacemakers. Finally, persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I think the idea of of being blessed for being, you know, persecution for righteousness' sake is simply standing in Christ's words with conviction. That's the idea of righteousness' sake. If you're standing in the word of God with conviction and someone insults you or or, or, he goes on to give you a list of things that go with that, then you're in good stead. You're in good standing. And you stand among a lot of other great people called prophets, (laughs) you know, and, and, and Jesus himself. And then Jesus goes on and, 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 and tells us that if all of this is going on in your life and this transition is beginning to happen and there's a transformation going on in your, in your heart and you're hungering and thirsting and seeking him, that, that you become the salt of the world and the light of the world. Salt is the idea of preservation. Light is the sense of exposing darkness. And when people look at you, they're gonna, they're, some people are going to look at you and say, I don't like you because you point out what my lifestyle is, sin. 
Now, I didn't dislike the friends that were coming over with their Bibles, but I'd come to the point where I disliked what they said. That was a form of persecution. I walked out the door. I had nothing to do with you when you were talking about this. You want to go fishing? You want to go boating? You want to go hunting? You want to, oh, let's go. Don't bring your Bible. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be around people who stand on principle of any kind that sticks. You see, there's an absolute set of, 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 of absolutes <laughs> that our culture doesn't want to accept. We want all sorts of, everything is, is variable. Situational ethics. Whatever the situation is determines what, what needs to be done. And, and, and everybody kind of can do their own thing about it. But there is an absolute set of absolutes in the God-breathed word. And when you stand there, you will find, you might never even know that you've been persecuted. <laughs> but there will be people that will just, you know, never say hi again. Never, you'll never, you know, they see you in the, in the supermarket and they rush down another lane. Because they just don't want to see you. You're the salt. You're the light. And then Jesus goes on and, and finally says, by the way, I want you to understand that all the law that points out that what's, what sin is and how, how you, know, you're, you are a sinner and, and you need to be right before the throne of God and talks about the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff, none of that is void my teaching. In fact, not one iota, not one dot. That means the little, excuse me all of you, those of you who understand the Greek, the little squiggles and dots and stuff that are between the letters and over the letters in, in, in the Hebrew. Those who understand the Hebrew. See, I even got mixed up in talking about it. Uh, the, the, the iotas and the dots, the little marks, the little letter iota, the little squiggles and stuff. Not one part of that has been canceled. He says, instead, I've come to finish it, complete it, put it together in every way so that the door is open for you. Where man has failed, Christ has succeeded perfectly in all holiness without error, completely, fully, to the point that we're on the cross, he can say, it is finished. Nothing is left to be accomplished. In the next few weeks, we're going to have, we're going to, we're, if I meddled today in any way, that's nothing yet. In the next few weeks, we are going to meddle. When I say we, it's not only me that have been preaching lately, and you understand that. My, the things that have been going on with my health have, have limited my ability to focus and to, to stay concentrated and study and stuff like that. And so if I don't preach every Sunday, I seem to be a little bit better off in the sense of being able to, to, to put it together for maybe every other Sunday right now or something in that framework. So it's, it, it hasn't been just me over the last several weeks and, and few months preaching. I hope you can appreciate that because we are so blessed 
to have others who can stand in this pulpit and bring us the Word of God so clearly and faithfully and with prayer and hard study as well. And I, I am a blessed man because of that. And, and, and But we're going to talk about things you don't want to talk about. We're going to talk about anger. We're going to talk about lust. We're going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about what it is to keep a promise. We're going to talk about our enemies and how to love them. Uh, you know, How am I going to have victory and, and, and survive in this world? And the bottom line is, again, only one way. And it initiates with the Beatitudes. I start with being poor in spirit, mourn over my sin, humbly accept the open door of Jesus Christ, His grace, and then hunger and thirst after Him. Seeking Him, asking Him, knocking at His door, and knowing that when I ask in faith, He will answer. And not always with the answer I am thinking I need, but one that I need to build on where I am. And all of this, again, possible through the door of the cross, through the blood of Christ that has opened and, and the door and finished the work that we can approach his throne. Brings us right to communion. Now, after communion, we're going to have the kids come from next door and they're going to sing some songs. They have been working very, very hard at doing this. And so we tried to figure out where to plug them in. I'm just telling you, we'll plug them in at that point because we figured it was the easiest way to redeposit them afterwards. <laughs> Go see your parents. Uh, you know, uh, so that's what's going to happen then. But for right now, I want you to focus on, on just who God is, what Christ has done, how poor in spirit we are, but how blessed we are to have his grace. Ask the ushers to come forward. Pass the communion out until we've all been served, and we'll share together.
you dead have fully paid the dead you people know the wrath remains for us to stay it's shelter by your another way of saying it, isn't it? He's rescued us. You rest in His love. And it's all because Jesus Christ abandoned the things of heaven, emptied Himself, and became flesh and dwelt amongst. And He gave us such a clear picture of that on the night that He was betrayed when He took the bread and He gave thanks and He broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. Bread to represent the flesh of Jesus Christ that we would always remember what He's done for us. Let us share in the bread this morning. In order for everything to be complete so the law would be fulfilled in every way, 
not a, 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 an iota or a dot left undone. It needed a sacrifice to cover man's sin. First Adam abandoned God through his sin. We inherited his flesh and his desires, resulting in our sin. We needed a second Adam to do it perfect. That's what Paul calls Jesus, the second Adam. He says the first Adam blew it, the second Adam fixed it. He did it by being the sacrifice. He poured out his life. He poured out his blood. So that's what he said about the cup. The end of the meal, as he was sharing with the disciples, he said, this is my blood poured out for you to purchase the covenant. And he asked as often as we would share in the bread, as we'd share in the cup, that we would do so remembering him until he comes again, at which time he will share this with us. And I believe, again, as I frequently say, the marriage supper of the church, of the bride of Christ, and the, their Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us share in the cup. Father, again, this morning we thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We ask that the, the, the things that we shared so quickly and briefly this morning would be things that would be cemented in us. That we would just desire to know you and to know you more. And so we'll just leave this thought this morning. Cause us to hunger and thirst after you. Cause us to uh, ask you, to, to seek you, to knock at your door. And then when you knock, when we're not paying any attention and you knock, Lord, cause us to be of mind through your Holy Spirit in us to open the door and let you in. We worship you, we thank you, and we ask that you would give us a burden to be peacemakers and sharing it with others. In Jesus' name.